if I'm going to agree that the end of the command is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, sincere faith, can somebody in a same-sex relationship, sexual relationship, experience those things? What do you think? Welcome everyone to the Faith Recovery Podcast. Oh baby, we're sicking. We're seeking. We're sicking. We're, we're seeking. Sicking on the gospel. <laughs> we're seeking. Sick em. We're sicking bears. Uh, we're seeking to recover faith by recovering the faith. I'm Kent, and I am Nathan, and we're doing a series on or about simple church. And Nathan's starting a simple church with some people, and they're and so we're going to go through. We're working our way through a document that. Uh, cover some of the ideas behind this simple church. We've talked about abolishing the uh, general fund. And last week we talked about uh, how the gospel is the final authority for faith and practice. And I think we're going to still be talking about that today as we work through the document. Um, so I'm going to reread the point and now we're going to move into some sub points. So the point from last week was this, the gospel is the word of God for the church and will serve as the final authority for all matters of faith and practice. The, the Bible, including the New Testament, is secondary revelation meant to illuminate and be illuminated by the gospel, but not meant to dictate individual behavior or church policy. Now, as we wrapped up last week, um, I was asking Nathan, so what would that look like to follow the Bible? And you were like, well, first of all, let's just get it out in the open that people who uh, attend your standard sort of uh, progressive, grace-oriented evangelical church don't actually follow the Bible. They, of course, <laughs> say they follow the Bible. They think they follow the Bible. Um, but they don't do things like women must, must wear long hair. Women must have head coverings. Women cannot speak in church. Um you know, take the Lord's Supper every Sunday because because those are the things actually prescribed in the Bible for church meetings, church practice. Um, you you said that to actually follow the Bible wouldn't in, would involve all of these quirky things, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, so that's kind of where we wrapped up. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think it's a, a fair point because we we as evangelicals take pride in the fact that we follow the Bible, right? And um, maybe we actually by default have a tendency, a compulsion to follow the, the, the gospel. We have this compulsion to follow the spirit of the New Testament, which is the gospel, um, though we have a religion that says we follow the Bible. Uh, yeah. That gets us into trouble um, the more serious we get about that. Right, and I, I would say that one value of the gospel, one core focus is... And, and this is going to sound weird um, it, uh, or culturally uh, it, it's going to sound like I'm, I'm trying to accommodate um, maybe what's popular and I'm, and I'm not. Okay. I'm going to make a case that I'm not, but one of the core values of the gospel is uh, cultural relevance. I know that sounds strange. Okay. But Paul could have spared himself a lot of suffering in life if he, were more dogmatic mm -hmm. and he was hated and, and we talked talked about this last time but he was hated for his um lack of dogma mm -hmm. um his pragmatic approach to god that would i think to a lot of us uh, especially maybe uh, as a reaction to 
Western liberalism and the Enlightenment movement that that we would the church kind of got entrenched in in a very dogmatic approach like we wanted something timeless and unchanging and so when people on the other side of the aisle maybe people who weren't believers in God began to do ethics that were situational we began to think this is this is reckless this can't be right um and and so maybe we pushed back and and kind of regressed into this dogmatic stance that it doesn't matter if you can't see why it's right or wrong you do it anyway Mm -hmm. like um I would think, here's my hope, is that as a male in church, let's say, <clears throat> you look around and you think, you know, um, women are being marginalized and excluded. They are in a, a subcategory, not unlike the way African Americans were treated, let's say, in the middle 20th century. I, d- I see a lot of similarities in terms of uh, complementarianism where we say well we're separate but equal mm-hmm. and it, you have to turn off um, kind of a golden rule approach some some empathy if you are a male in a male dominated church <clears throat> because you're like well yeah I wouldn't want that to happen to me I wouldn't want to be sidelined or pigeonholed or given you know a limited set of responsibilities and um, access in this group. I wouldn't want that, <clears throat> but I didn't choose it. And, you know, God calls all of us to suffer in some ways and stuff, man, I don't know. You know, it, you, you have to turn off some empathy to do that. Does that, does that seem like the best thing, you know? Um, and apart from a practical standpoint, does that seem like good ethics um, to turn off your empathy for the sake of some dogma, um, it's it's potentially dangerous, I think, morally for us. And <clears throat> we could say, well, you know, you're you're talking like a like a liberal or an unbeliever or whatever. But I, I think that the gospel got there first, <laughs> and and that's why you know this is really important because Paul did fight for access for everyone. Now what he did, and we talked about this, have some misogynistic statements okay but again he even even in his most misogynistic day he was a flaming liberal when it came to women's roles and compared to his culture so i mean we're all we're all bound by culture and the gospel is always going to encounter us somewhere along a continuum Mm -hmm. um but it seems to me that if you take the overarching view of scripture and, and the gospel is the overarching view of scripture, you know, that this salvation narrative, this eternal gospel is, I think the, um, the code key, it's the overarching story of scripture. And if we have that, we get the whole thing. Um, and if you take that overarching view that there is this vision, this, what uh, scholars would call a shalomic vision for humankind, and that vision is for everyone to flourish, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and, and flourishing isn't just not suffering. It's not just having enough. Uh, it includes the realizing of your purpose. I think that that's probably the highest um, 
gift that that we can give that civilization can give to the individual and the individual can give to civilization is what uh, Maslow called self-actualization that we've become who we were supposed to be Mm -hmm. in truth and fully now if society lays prefabricated you know prescriptives on people without any sort of justification it's begun to, I think, work against that shalomic vision. Uh, if we say, as Aristotle did, that some people are made to serve, to be basically an extension of other people, and they, they, you know, their highest goal and the realization of what they ought to be is in performing menial tasks. If we say that in a society and we say, well, you know, that, that helps the society because what you get is uh, people who just assume that, well, I was born a slave and I'm going to die a slave and that's who I'm supposed to be. And they don't rock the boat. That helps society. So it's very convenient for our ethics to say some people were born to be slaves. It is not a part of a shalomic vision of humankind. And so the gospel upsets the apple cart. And what you get is this, for all of us, we all have to wrestle with it in this yet but not yet reality. Mm-hmm. So sometimes Paul says, slaves obey your masters. You know? And we think, man, this guy's so regressive and he's just, a, you know, toe in the party line. And then sometimes he says, masters, remember you have a master. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, who are you, Paul? Who are you to tell me how I ought to treat this person who is not really a person like I am? Mm-hmm. You can see how that begins to undermine the civilization that the Romans had assumed, the Greco-Roman world had assumed for centuries until that point. That there is in the, in the gospel this seed the subversive seed that is undermining the oppressive structures that have to that in other societies must exist. So think of the caste from within, system. Undermining right. it from within. Right. Think of the caste system in India. Mm-hmm. Okay. Even though maybe the laws, you know, Western values, which I think are rooted in the gospel, um, you know, they begin to undermine those on a on a global stage. Right, like Hindu government or the, you know, Modi and the Indian government can't just come out and say the caste system's something we want to uphold and maintain. It just it's not a good look. Mm-hmm. But in their society, it remains because it's it's undergirded by religion. Mm-hmm. So here's a religion that's telling you it doesn't matter that, you know, if you as a child and you see someone who is born a Dalit. And, and that you know that they're suffering and your mom tells you, you should go and spit on him because you will help him pay for his sins of his previous life. Okay. Mm-hmm. And you as a child, you're like, you know, you, you're repulsed at that idea, mm-hmm. but you just encouraged. Eventually you do. Well, now you have cognitive dissonance. Now you tell yourself, yes, he did deserve it. 
And now you, you know, in 15 years, you're telling your child, go spit on him, you mm-hmm. know, um, that there's something deeply wrong with this prescriptive approach to religion that tells us deny basic compassion, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, um, <clears throat> see another human being as less than mm-hmm. if, if we have anything. So I would say that, that, that includes more recently women in the church and the way we, what we teach about women in the church that yes, there are some prescriptive things. Yes, they did come from Paul. Paul never claimed to be right all the time. <laughs> you know, if we really want to read Paul in a way that's fair to Paul, he says, if I preach something else, may I be accursed, right? He's not saying, if I said it, it's right, because I said it. That's what somebody like Muhammad or Joseph Smith would say. Paul's like, you know, watch me. He, you know, he says, I, I went and I checked my gospel with those who were uh, believers before me, apostles before me, lest I be preaching in vain. He held open this possibility that he could be wrong. Mm-hmm. You know? Somewhere in Corinthians, he mm-hmm. says, um, to the rest I say, not the Lord, but I. Right. <laughs> yeah. I, so he's like, I give you this as my advice. You mm-hmm. know, this is how I see it. Right. And you only do that if you see your role as a, a counselor, as an advisor. You don't do that if you see your role as prophet dictating from on high well and there's there's places in paul that you and i might be right here saying he just seems to be wrong Mm -hmm. and then there's other places in paul where i think what we're saying is he's not wrong he's just adapting to the culture he's working within the culture and he's imbuing those roles with the gospel so when he says slaves obey your masters as unto the lord knowing that you'll get a reward from the lord right He's not wrong in the sense of like he believes in slavery. He believes these slaves deserve to be slaves. They were born to be slaves. He's just saying, since you find yourself a slave, mm-hmm. then right. uh, then do it as a Christian would. Yes. And masters, since you find yourself a master, then do it as a Christian would. Right. Because he understands that the gospel meets us where we're at, meets society where it's at, and yeah. it starts to change people from within and change right. society from within. So there's instances yeah. where we just need to understand Paul differently, mm-hmm. where we we need to realize he's not he's not in uh, in enforcing this structure for all time, slaves right. slavery for example, right, and then by extension from there, I think you would say, uh, husband head of the wife wife subservient to her husband he's not enforcing that structure for all time but rather he is saying. Uh, this is this is how our society is. This is how society has been for all time. And since you find yourself in this role, husband, do it as a Christian. Do it as Christ would. Since you find yourself in this role, wife, do it as Christ would. At least that would be one way to see Paul in a new light. Right. Um, you might argue, no, no, he really believed that for all time, women should be subservient to their husbands. Yeah. Um, that would put us then in that other category right. where we see Paul as saying misogynistic things where he's, sure. <laughs> yeah. where he's flawed yeah. and he's a man of his time and a man of his culture. He can't, he hasn't really seen beyond this point of view. Right. Yeah. Well, and I mean, there's this tension between what is best for society, what is best for the individual and they, uh, they contribute to one another. So um, if the individual is free and society is in flames, 
then the individual is not free, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Because the individual needs uh, some sort of a healthy society. We must have a basic level of civility and peace in our society to become actualized, right? To become what God made us. So if you are in a society where men are the sole land owners um, and they are the sole really providers and stuff like that, and that women are restricted in their access to education and things like that. So you know, to, to say, throw off all bonds and slaves run away and, you know, women defy your husbands and all that, you know, that's, that's a sabotage of Shalom as well, right? That's, that's to create chaos where there ought to be order. And so it's in the individual's interest. And I think it's in God's will that there be order and in society. But, um, I think within the church, <clears throat> as as we are continuing to put tension on each other over the gospel, that within the church we're cl- creating an enclave, because out there we can't assume that people will use their freedom well. You know, we, we get in scripture, we get a couple of um, in- exhortations to use our freedom well. You know, Paul says, "You it was for freedom. Christ set you free, but don't use your freedom as an occasion to the flesh, right? Don't misuse it. And Peter says, don't, you know, don't use your freedom as a cloak for uh, wickedness, right? But, but through love, serve each other. So freedom is this thing that we must have, we must retain, but we must retain it. We must have it so that we can love. <laughs> and so in our society, in, in the church, we ought to be led by that. We don't need a top-down list of do's and don'ts so much as we need the constant encouragement to trust and from that trust to love and our society and, and that freedom supports that love and that's the way it ought to be trending. Hmm. You know, you're getting into the, the next point, which is what I was going to get to today. As a new society of liberated individuals, we will observe and defend the freedom of every member to live by the faith of Christ. Okay, that's what you're talking yes. about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And it, it sounds so vague, but I think it's good. I'm glad we're having this conversation so that we can maybe flesh this out a little bit in a way that, you know, I, I think is going to take time in a group of people. What does that look like? Um, I think one thing it looks like <clears throat> is maybe uh, setting our intention to not judge one another, to give each other kind of the benefit of the doubt. We have these, I think we have these dynamics when we get in any kind of group of people to maybe feel threatened by some or um, to begin to compare ourselves in some ways. And that when we do that, it makes us like we try to enforce procedures, policies, uh, protocols that maybe confine somebody else or begin to undermine them. So, so let's say, <clears throat> you know, um, let's say I just never was really very good at, in school or whatever. And, or for whatever reason, my circumstances have conspired so that 
I'm just not much of an earner, you know. Maybe I can make just enough to kind of make scratch on my most, on my best day. Um, and from that viewpoint, from that standpoint, I might tend to become judgmental of somebody who just keeps falling backward into money. Mm-hmm. You know, that <clears throat> they're just. Or maybe they're just a high achiever and they've just done really well. You know, they made their first million before they were 30 and they, um, and they've just been very successful. <clears throat> now, from my standpoint as a, maybe just somebody who's a, a, just a subsistence kind of living person and I, maybe I have other friends like that and stuff and, and I begin to think, you know, very wealthy people are greedy and selfish, and um, and I want to create a set of policies where, you know, <clears throat> people are looked down upon if they drive a certain kind of car. <laughs> you know, um, now that is, to me, it begins to create another form of legalism. You know, and I, and I think that. <clears throat> nowadays that there's there's this movement to try to um, hold up Jesus and the Gospels as our standard. So, you know, he was homeless man, you know, he, all this. So, but, you know, honestly, we don't see Jesus giving away a lot of money. The most money we've ever seen Jesus give away was whatever it was caught out of, Peter caught out of a fish. Um, so... This yes is like no. this is like the red letter Christians. Like right. let's just go back to Jesus <clears throat> and the Gospels and right. emulate whatever we see there, right? And I think that when we do that, we begin to create kind of an Ananias and Sapphira syndrome, where you know we tell these stories. Look at so and so. You know, he's driving an old clunker, and he's you know he lives in a little apartment. Wow, man, he's so like Christ. And then we like look, look at that guy, you know, he drives a luxury car and lives in a big house. And obviously, you know, I'm wondering if he should be under church discipline, you know, mm-hmm. man, that is not healthy. And, and it, what we, what we end up with is a lose, lose. We end up with people who, um, well-to-do people who maybe they, they just don't, they don't stick it out or they find somewhere else to go or whatever. Um, and then we end up with, People who really are just, you know, uh, they're just looking to impress somebody else. They want to be that hero, that person that's held up as more like Jesus than others. And that's not a good aspiration either. And I ought to know, you know, I've, I've been on that side of it where you just have, you romanticize poverty and suffering. We certainly are going to suffer with Christ. Um, it's part and parcel. But when we go and chase it for some romantic notion or to be celebrated, even in the fantasies of our own minds, I think that we've begun to, to miss it. Mm-hmm. And so <clears throat> if, if we have a very wealthy person among us, let's say, and they just never contribute, you know, well, we don't know what they're giving to, you know. We don't know who they're taking care of. And honestly, it's not up to me to find out. I'm going to keep holding the gospel in front of everybody because 
you know, when we give, we're not making some great sacrifice. We are celebrating the mercy that we've received. We are receiving the the true riches, you know, that we ought to have some sort of a, almost a greed toward uh, the holy riches, you know, the good things. And that, that is a gift. And so if it begins to be, we set this norm of generosity or of Christ likeness, as we understand it from the gospels, that community is going to begin to become unhealthy as we are comparing ourselves with one another, just our level of sacrifice. And maybe someone's going to look at that church and say, man, that church, they're on fire and all that, man, that church is on fire. All right. They're not, but they're not with God, they're burning up and zeal is not always a good thing. Zeal, just like fire can be good and bad. Um, so all that to say, that's just one example. Um, you know, another is, and I've seen this in churches, generally women in the world tend to resent one another. that there's this tendency for women to compare themselves with each other and their appearance. Um, and there's a tendency, I think, for women who fit society's norms of beauty to try to accentuate that. And, and, and that's their moment in discipleship. You know, they have to do their work before God. Um, but then there's the other, on the other side, you know, maybe somebody who doesn't fit that as well, or they don't feel that they fit that very well. And they begin to resent somebody. So let's say there's some, you know, girl at the church that's, you know, fits the classic beauty standard. And maybe she wants to wear the most trendy clothing. And in, in some cases, maybe that's more revealing, you know? Um, and again, that may be a discipleship moment for her. Right. Um, at the same time, you've got others who, if they were out in the world, they would resent this girl just as much. You know, they don't resent her because of the gospel. They resent her because of their own insecurities. And so they're going to push for uh, a real you know, predefined sense of, of modesty. You know, what is what is modesty? And modesty isn't. They don't define modesty like the Bible does in terms of, um, like we talked about last time, you know, not wearing makeup and, you know, not fixing your hair and all that, you know. I guess if we were following the Bible, that's back to the back to following the Bible. That's, in fact, what they would be doing is right. uh, No, no jewelry. Right. I can't remember the exact prescription that I think it's somewhere in Peter's letter. Yeah. Not braiding of hair, no gold. Um, Yeah. No. I can't remember all of it either, mm-hmm. but anyway, there's this whole list and, in, and it's intimated also by Paul and I think first Timothy, but you know, there are some prescriptives and we, so, you know, we could go all Pentecostal with it and make everybody wear the same jumper dress and all that. But again, you know, you start to get this uniformity that does not look like the gospel when you do that. So that would be. I think what we have to do is we have to make room for people to express their faith in ways that, uh, you know, are where they are. Um, and it, you know, if, 
if we aren't, if we don't have a general fund, it doesn't matter to me if you're not giving your share. Number one, who am I to say what your share is? You know, um, number two, I only have a problem with that if I'm greedy, <laughs> you know, if I'm like, well, why do I have to give up all of my money? You know, if I'm like, yes, yes, praise God, you know, here you go. There's some more, you know, you're just getting in my way if you're wanting to pick up the tab, <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, so, um, I don't have a reason to judge your giving or non-giving. Um, and, and so this is me and me and God and, um, yeah, I think the whole church benefits, but not if we begin to set some standard. If we say, well, you know, 10%, man, that's um, that's a really poor standard to give to people. You know, it helps the group. Let's say, you know, if you as a church and you want to budget for next year and you can kind of estimate what everybody out there is making and, and plan around that, and you make this real push for everybody to give 10%, but that has right there, you have really undercut any possibility of, of genuine generosity coming out of your people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, that's the kind of thing. So it's really important that we do that and that we don't set any policies that would somehow try to predefine. Cause I, I you know, you think about the church in Romans 14, these people had some serious differences. I mean, this was, this was, we just diminish it when we read it because we can't understand what they were going through, you know? Jews versus Gentiles in the church. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you, let's just think about something that you just assume is moral and you, um, and you have some sort of a, almost a dogma about it. So <clears throat> let's say you never say any words that couldn't be said in a G-rated movie. Mm-hmm. And for you, that's your discipleship. That's that's what it means to be a Christian. Like, like it's a part of your story. Before you became a Christian, you're just the right. most foul-mouthed person, and, and you couldn't stop. Mm-hmm. And then Jesus came into your life, and he took all that out of your mouth, you mm-hmm. know? And you're just so thankful, and he's done that for you, mm-hmm. right? Um, and there's somebody else that... They grew up saying these words, yeah. and everybody they know says these words, and it doesn't right. even hardly occur to them that they might shouldn't say these words. Right. Or maybe they're younger, and these this, the same words, the same list of words, it's just not it's not stigmatized like it was when you grew yeah, up. Yeah, different generation. Generational right. differences. We see mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Now, if you, you know, at the church leadership, whatever, and we say, okay, word A, B, and C are, you know, Christians can't say those words, you know. Um, now me saying that is probably going to chafe some people right now, <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know? Um, <clears throat> but if we don't have the freedom, the diversity, because this is, you know, language is somewhat arbitrary. It's contextual. Mm-hmm. It's evolving all the time. You know, there's not something that God has always has said that, you know, this word is always bad. I remember, um, when I was at, uh, JBU and I was taking some, biblical classes and uh, one of the teachers very accomplished theologian um, you know just done a ton of work devoted his life to Christ and he went on this whole thing this whole aside about why the F-bomb is okay Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) just like man I don't know why you have to go through all these prescriptives to do this you know or why this is important to you but all that to say is is that you know he had a case you can make a case 
for pretty much anything. And <clears throat> so I just think the church should be made up of, of people who are, who are pretty different from each other. And sometimes whose sensibilities chafe against our own scruples and who might even embarrass us in front of our extended family and friends, mm -hmm. that that's what it means to be in the church, you know, because at the end of that section in Romans 14, you get into 15 and he was, he talks about how he says we should bear with the weak because as it is written, you know, the, the reproaches of those who reproached you have fallen on me. You know, um, oh, there's a line in there in that same section, somewhere in there where he says, accept one another as God in Christ has accepted you. Right. Yeah. And, and that, that can be a challenge. Um, and I, I think it, it not only is a challenge, I think it awakens in us some fears that things are going to be chaotic, mm -hmm. you know, um, <clears throat> that we can't allow that kind of freedom for everybody. Um, but, but that, that fear I think arises from unbelief in the gospel. You know, Paul had this belief in the gospel that if it's let, if we let it do its work, it will bring the result. Mm -hmm. And and God is aiming at holiness. The gospel is producing in us holiness. Right. So, because I can imagine someone hearing what we're saying and saying, mm -hmm. yeah, but what about holiness? It's not just that God accepts us as we are. It's not just that we accept one another as we are. Mm -hmm. It's also that we're growing and we're called to a standard. We're called to a holiness. Yeah. And the debate is over what's the standard. Right. Right. Uh, is it, you can't say these certain words, yeah. <laughs> type of standard, uh -huh. a legalistic standard, or is it a gospel standard? Mm -hmm. And we've discussed that gospel standard off through the course of our entire podcast. I'm not sure how, how much we've covered it in this discussion on Simple Church. You're arguing that there's a gospel standard. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Let's, let's get to that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because the gospel standard, part of it is freedom, right? If you're in a place where everybody loves each other, but they're really different. Uh-huh. You know, what, what is holy, right? It uh -huh. means to be different. Uh -huh. Okay. Um, Set so apart. If you show up in a community of people where, you know, rich and poor are still there as rich and poor, you know, there's not this tension for the rich to divest everything. <clears throat> and yet there is generosity. Um, you're there with people who are maybe more vulgar <laughs> and people who are more um, erudite, you know, in, uh, and highly educated and uneducated and black and white. And, you know, uh, you, you just got this panorama of humankind where everybody has equal love and regard for one another. Th to me, that's holy. Mm -hmm. That's something you don't find anywhere else. And that it says God has been here. So that's, I think that's it's, one thing. It's holy. <clears throat> it's different. It's countercultural mm -hmm. and it's, and it's like Christ. It's, uh, it's, it's this self-giving love, this acceptance, right? Um, Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's a part of it. And yet it's not just that. I mean, we could decide to be just radically inclusive, you know, and in every way, although nobody's achieved that even people who shoot at radical inclusiveness have people that they exclude, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so I think only the gospel can actually achieve that. you know, we don't, you don't come up with multiculturalism by aiming at multiculturalism. 
You only come up with it by aiming at the gospel, you know, and um, in multiculturalism results. Um, so it, it's that kind of society, I think, it, it says that God has been here. Um, but Paul talks even as he's saying, you know, hey, you eat meat sacrificed to idols. You don't, you know, true in truth, the one who eats, eats the meat is probably closer to right and the one who doesn't probably a bit spiritually regressive but that's okay you know i mean he actually sides with one over the other but he says both of you should have equal regard for each other both of you should accept each other and even if your brother is embarrassingly wrong you should still love him you know because he's growing you know i mean he paul is assuming some person some people have more faith than others um, but you know, if a family decides to throw out everybody who can't earn a living, you know, you're never going to have any kids there. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, <clears throat> so it, there is this sense of, of just welcoming people as where they are in their growth. But there are things about this that, that he seems to require. One is he says, the one who eats the meat gives God thanks. And the one who doesn't gives God thanks, you know, does it unto the Lord and mm -hmm. gives God thanks. And the one who doesn't does it unto the Lord and gives God thanks. Um, and then at the end of it, he says, whatever is not of faith is sin. So we are held accountable, but it is to a personal consistency, a personal moral consistency where we are at that moment. Are you giving thanks to God? Are you doing it from faith? Right. At which, which I think another sort of just given and an obvious thing, I need to, it's, it's a given and we need to say it and make it obvious, which is that they are, believers in Christ. Right. So the, the inclusivity is there. The, the exclusive element is that this is a group of people who have confessed Jesus is Lord. Right. And that mm -hmm. implies a posture of thanks and yeah. faith. Mm -hmm. Like I'm really seeking to follow Jesus. Right. Yes. Which is why you know, we, we, come together to gospel one another, right? As, as we proclaim Christ's death and his resurrection, we we hold up him up as the the conquering Lord of all, you know. Um, then those those truths have implications, okay? And and so some of those are, and 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 so Paul would say that. A life of faith is a life that is authentic, that it is a life that is consistent with one's own conscience. So not only does he allow diversity, but he insists upon it in that, you know, freedom has come. We're all free, but not everybody can accept as much freedom as everybody else. And so there has to be that difference so that people don't violate their own conscience. You know, uh, so let's take the, the idea of, of salty language. And um, <clears throat> so you're the one who you just you've always had a very, you know, you've, you've watched your language very carefully. You've always associated that with being godly. And now you're in this group and it's more freewheeling. And you've got a couple of people who throw a, you know, salty word in here and there. And and you start thinking, you know, this guy's cool. I want to be like him. You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you start using it for that reason, you know, what you, you've, you've done something not of faith. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, and so that's, that's what I think Paul would encourage people. Hey, you know, if that's not been your background, 
then you serve God by not saying those things, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and so it, that's why it's just critically important that if we, let's say you are part of a church leadership body and there's a problem out there. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So your wife comes to you and says, I just don't like that. These girls are coming in here and you know, the way they're dressed and all this, <laughs> you know, and so you begin to make certain policies of how you should dress when you come to church, man, that's, that's moving in the wrong direction. In my opinion, you know, yes, we should have order. I mean, obviously there's, there's a certain level, I, th- I think of just general co- cultural propriety maybe. Um, but if we begin to put some sort of dress code or something, then we really are beginning to, um, kind of shut people down, shut people out. Um, if they, if somebody conforms to it, then, you know, I mean, we could encourage somebody on an individual level, you know, Hey, it's, it's troubling to me when you, when you dress like that and you're, for, you're certainly free to do that. I know Jesus loves you right where you're at, you know, and you could go and as a person just say, but you know, um, it's distracting, I think to some, to some of the people, you know, um, and, and I know that's a hard conversation, but, uh, you know, we, we have to appeal to someone's love for their brother and not for what God wants you to do, you know, on how you dress. Making it a top-down policy, making it our religion that this is, this is, this is the behavior we all follow. Right, right. And it just takes more, I think it takes more courage, but it invites somebody to just love their brother and to submit to one another rather than to just say this is right and that is wrong. Mm-hmm. And, um, now people are going to ask, now people are going to ask, well, what about, what about, um, homosexuality or transgender, uh, identities? Mm-hmm. Uh, where, where do we draw the line here? Um, what, if you're going to follow the gospel standard, does it have resident within it? This is my question. Does it have resident within it? Uh, a line that you draw there about sexuality? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So yeah. How do you see that? Yeah, <laughs> it's a it's a thorny issue um, because our world has changed so much. Um, I would, for me, on a on a on a just purely conceptual level, I would say that um, the details of the gospel from the Old Testament are kind of wound around marriage. Um, and at the same time, you know, not every culture does marriage the exact same way. Okay, <laughs> so. Um, I think it would be a yet and not yet. And right now we're, we're in a place where the yet has some different sexual ethics than what maybe the not yet. Okay. Is. You say yet and not yet. You mean, I, I say already not yet. Right. You say yet, not yet. Right. Throws me off. You're yeah, talking about sorry. the already not yet kingdom. The kingdom is here, but it's right, not right, yet that's here. That's what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, right. The already not yet. Um, that probably is clearer. Um, so let's say you go and you bring the gospel to a tribal culture, okay? And this in this culture, the um, men have multiple wives. Now, should those men put away, you know, wife two, three, and four, and their children um, to remediate what he now what this guy now sees as mistakes of the past, or should he? 
be faithful, love, you know, his family as it is and teach his children, you know, mm-hmm. the, the value of, uh, marriage and, and what scripture says about it and all that. Um, maybe, I don't know. I, I, I can't give the definitive word. Even in that, that illustration, <laughs> you're implying that there is a, um, monogamy, um, that is implied in the gospel. I think so. Yeah. I mean, it, it, because Paul speaks of Christ and the church and all of that. And I think that, that the idea of one flesh, it, it does speak of the two becoming one mm-hmm. in terms of that. Um, and yet it's not the core gospel. It's, 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 it's related to the gospel. I think it, it gives us a more consonant view of the gospel, this one flesh notion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and how the gospel relates to the church. Mm-hmm. But it isn't at the very center of just Christ died and rose again, mm-hmm. you know, for the individual. So um, sexual ethics can be somewhat cultural, um, is what I'm saying. And if you get into an already but not yet, so here's somebody, it's very, very much like, to me, the idea of owning another person is, is morally reprehensible on every level and in every case. Right, but Paul doesn't just cancel slavery. Um, it's something that was an already and not yet kind of a thing. Um, that the seeds of slavery's demise were sown in the gospel, um, but from a practical standpoint in that society, it just couldn't be done away immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, same with things like, say, polygamy in a, in a tribal culture. Um, but I do believe that the gospel will bring those things to an end because I think that polygamy is some, it has more to do with greed and uh, devaluing of another person. And those things just begin to go away when the gospel really takes hold and grows in a society. As people are treated as equals, you know, mm-hmm. we don't think, well, I can have four, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <clears throat> now, and I, and I started my question with mentioning homosexuality and transgender, but even if I take a step back and just talk about heterosexual promiscuity, mm-hmm. uh, there's another thing, you know, culture's changing and it's becoming more and more acceptable to sleep together before you're married. Right. And um, so then you could, uh, you could use that as another case to, stu- right. to study. Uh, we, I think, I think we see prohibitions against that in scripture. Right. Uh, and then it, get, it gets back to, is are we trying to be legalists following the Bible? Um, if we are enforcing, insisting upon not sleeping together before you're married, uh, is there a spirit of the gospel that is that frees people to sleep together before they're married? Or do we learn from the gospel that there's not not to be selfish, not to be lustful, to not to, uh, but to renounce, renounce self indulgence and do only that which is love and, right. and keep a clear conscience? Um, I think that's what you've taught us yeah. is that the gospel calls us definitely to renounce self-indulgence yeah. and instead do what is loving mm-hmm. and to do it from faith and with a clear conscience. Right. And that would probably argue against sleeping together before you're married, right. in, at least in most <clears throat> cases. Right. Um, rather, And that would be a non-legalistic way of each individual being dictated by their conscience, their faith, and by the gospel. Mm-hmm. Am I am I articulating sure. that well? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And if somebody, let's say they join us, and um, they're a couple, they're not married, they've been living together for seven years, they've got two kids, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. and um, they give their life to Christ and all of that. They 
probably should get married. Mm-hmm. You know, at the same time, they may think they're married. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and who am I to say they're not? You mm-hmm. know, at, at some point, a lot of that becomes just about paper and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying, you know, I, I don't know why they wouldn't if they really mm-hmm. are committed to one another and we can mm-hmm. officiate and all that. But it's not some sort of a, well, you know, we can't baptize you until you take care of this. You know, um, I think people are in process and um, that that's going to resolve itself in their lives. Mm-hmm. And we will encourage them, support them, um, come around them, try to help them understand why they they may be reticent to get married or something like that if they have been. Um, you know, there are people in all kinds of situations. I've talked to two different people who have just had things that had to do with finances, estate. They wanted to be married to their spouse, but if they are married on paper legally, then there would have been some things that would have worked against them. You know, do you officiate a ceremony though they don't have a license? Well, I mean, if you believe the legend of St. Valentine, you do, (laughs) you know, um, so there, there are certain considerations. Again, I'm not, I'm not here to judge. I mean, I could say, Hey, who cares about finances? Just do the right thing. And, and maybe that is the right thing to tell them, but, uh, I'm not the arbiter of their faith and maybe they don't feel led to, to do that, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, and I certainly don't have. I don't feel like the state should be involved in marriage anyway. (laughs) You know, like if they would have got out of it in the first place, we could have saved ourselves a lot of heartache in terms of the gay marriage debate and all this arguing about what should be counted as marriage. It's like, look, if you count it as marriage, count it as marriage. I don't. And that's fine. You know, and I don't, you know, let me just go on record. I don't, but I don't see that that is because I see marriage as something that has more to, as much to do with producing and rearing children and things like that as well. You mm-hmm. know, so it is a partnering and, um, but it is also providing a place to, to rear children mm-hmm. and that I think children do better in a, in a home where you have the mother and the father. Again, I'm not saying that men and women are exactly the same. Either. I was going to come back you to know? that. Yeah, earlier we were talking about equality of men and women, and I right. thought we've got to talk about how we're not saying men and women are the same and there are no differences. Right, right. And so this brought us full circle there. Right, right. But again, we have to wrestle with those, and, and we're free to do that because we have the freedom to fail. Because there's no condemnation, we can deal with these issues in every culture, in every generation, and say, what promotes individual flourishing? What promotes a healthy culture, you know, and as those individuals are, are participating in it? And, and we can begin to move in that direction as we are exhorting one another, warning one another, Again, not setting some sort of prescriptive policies and, and confining one another with that, but having this constant dialogue where we're free to broach maybe difficult issues with each other. Mm-hmm. But there's the understanding that at the, at the end of this conversation, if you're not convinced, I still love you, you know, mm-hmm. and I'll see you next week or tomorrow, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, um, but without that, without that underpinning, that assumption, we can't have these conversations. We're going to avoid them or we're going to preclude them. And Paul says, speaking the truth in love, we will grow up into him in all things. 
Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm really just saying that church ought to be an ongoing di- dialogue, not just top down, but uh, between all of the members as we are trying to understand each other, but it is predicated on a mutual acceptance based on faith. So let's have the conversation about LGBTQ with LGBTQ Christians. Mm-hmm. Isn't that the best place to have that conversation? Mm-hmm. rather than drawing lines and lobbing, you know, uh, insults <laughs> over, over a, you know, a barrier or frontier. Um, and that's, I'm afraid, what's happened. And that's created a very toxic environment, not just in the church, but in our society. Um, I, I think there are people who experience these things as very real to them. You mean attraction like same-sex attraction? Someone. Right, right. And and as somebody who's not experienced that, um, you know, it's easy for me to say that, that you can't do that, right? Mm-hmm. How can you tell someone what not to experience? Okay, yeah. now I have a question for you. There's emerging this sort of kind of a, a consensus, at least in one part of evangelicalism, and Preston Sprinkle is, is someone who's advocating for it, and there's others in, 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 this, in these circles who are saying, let's be very much affirming of and, and welcoming of gay people, and, uh, and, and yet let's hold to what they're calling the biblical standard of, uh, and the historic Christian standard, that's the language they use, the historic Christian understanding of marriage, and so that we understand that God accepts these uh, people as they are, and also at the same time calls them to um, celibacy mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, if they're not going to have a heterosexual marriage, then they are called by Christ. The historic Christian standard is celibacy right. and they, and that church should be family for them and they could be family for one another, but there's a purity, sexual purity that they're called to and ex- right. expressed in celibacy. So that may be your, maybe your personal view, Nathan, mm-hmm. but you would are are you advocating that that should not be the church's policy whereas preston yeah. would say this this should, this is christian policy this is historic christian teaching right yeah are you saying no we can't we shouldn't have that policy we it can be my view that yeah. that's what's best for people and that's what comes out of the the biblical tradition and out of the gospel yeah are you saying that is that a distinction? Yeah, I mean, I'm on. I feel like I'm on really thin ice, <laughs> but I, I, I certainly. This is. I, I think that if, if I'm going to agree that the end of the command is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, sincere faith, can somebody in a same-sex relationship, sexual relationship? experience those things what do you think well it's easier for me to see how it can happen in a couple who've been together a long time right like they're just established in this relationship maybe they've even got kids mm-hmm. and uh and they're they've come to christ and and god is working in their life and they are those moral questions are in the past for them and they're not they're not I can imagine they are not coming back up because they're mm-hmm. now Christian. That they're in, they're in, they're in, they're integrating Christian faith into their gay, right, uh, monogamous life, gay yeah. monogamous lifestyle. I'm, I'm, I'm obviously putting some parameters on them. I'm saying it's sure. monogamy, mm-hmm. uh, and they're taking care of one another, and uh, and they're in, and they're incorporating Christ into that setting. Right. It's harder for me to 
um, be accepting of the, that of that notion on the front end of a gay right. of a gay lifestyle or mm-hmm. a gay relationship. I'm more inclined to say Christ is calling you to make some um, definitive decisions in, in your life to right. to renounce this um, this pursuit of yeah. this same sex attraction and embrace the call the, the 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 call to take up your cross of celibacy. Sure. And to find in God and in the church your family. So I feel kind of two ways about it. Right. But practically speaking, you can't give the first couple a break and discourage the second couple. You know what I'm saying? Like if there's a young same-sex couple and they're wanting to pursue marriage or Uh something, right? Um, And you allow an older same-sex couple to come in and stay together. Uh You can't, you know, you can't do both. Maybe you can. Maybe yeah. that. Maybe that's what I hear you arguing in a way is like there's this pragmatism. Also, I've failed to mention that another thing I've thought about is these older couples more established in their monogamous gay relationship. They could choose to renounce sex. Yes. And so they can be, well, there's a, for our listeners, Pause. we're getting interrupted by the coffee yeah. maker uh, or something over there. Um, for our, they could choose to renounce the sexual, the sexual aspect of their relationship. Mm-hmm. And they're just there to love one another, uh, and they've accepted the fact that their sexual relationship is not as God intended it to be. Right, and so they're laying that aside. Right. Uh, again, I, I want to be empathetic. So when if I'm if I'm somebody who in my bones I know that I'm gay. Okay. Um, like from my first memory, I just been attracted to people of the same sex. Okay. What I hear you saying is, is that um, I was born with a defect, and I need to live a, a less than life because of this defect. Um, that you are prescribing for me something you would never prescribe for yourself, um, and you're doing it not because of something I've chosen or done, but because of how I was born. That's how I would hear it. Mm-hmm. So that that's what makes it difficult, you know. Preston Sprinkle and others that are saying that is just that, um, yeah. It and, and we might say, well, you know, I, I can't just sleep with any old woman that I that I'm attracted to, and so I, it's the same. It's not the same, is it? You know, that to say, um, for a heterosexual to right. say, no, I have every strength placed on me too, brother. Right. right. That's, I mean, that's bunk and that's mm-hmm. not fair. I want to, I want to be fair, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? I do. And, and I think sometimes if, if we just try to um, maintain a dogma, we start being unfair uh, with people. And it's, and so to me, I, I, I want to acknowledge that telling someone that because they're attracted to someone of the same sex, that they are called to singleness is, um, it, I, I want us to try to understand how that sounds to them. Okay. Um, and, and so that's a challenge. Now at the same time, you know, God is holy. If he calls somebody to do something, they should do it, you know, up into and including dying, you know? Um, and that's fine. I, I just, on a, on a human level though, I, I want to understand, I want us to understand how that sounds and how it's not the same thing because it's not incumbent on everyone equally and it's based on something that the other person didn't choose you know and so let's say let's say again if i want you to imagine that you see 
sexual orientation as analogous to race. Okay. Something I'm born with, something I can't change. Right. I'm not saying that it is, but I'm saying that the many people experience it that way and see it that way. And I mean, from what I can tell, maybe, you know, we don't, there isn't a gay gene. And so we can't prove that people are born gay, but mm -hmm. I think that there, that same sex attraction is probably a congenital circumstance that there's something that has to do with, with hormones in, in utero and stuff. People don't, I mean, in, in cultures where, where gay um, activity was punishable by death. I don't think people just chose it, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and so it's just, it's not fair to tell somebody that it was a choice on their part. Um, and so <clears throat> there, there may be cases where just rampant sexuality in a culture and promiscuity and you know, that there is this cultural contagion. It's a complex issue, mm -hmm. but I'm saying you get it. Let's get into the mind of someone who's just always been attracted and always identified, you know, as gay. Okay. And, and it's like, if you told somebody who was born of a certain race that, you know, Oh, you've got the mark of Cain and, um, you know, we don't want to, we don't want to perpetuate the mark of Cain. So black people can't have babies. They can't get married. Um, and, and so I made a biblical case for it. Right. Mm -hmm. And that you're cursed obviously. Um, or you've got the, what the ham, the cursed mark of ham or curse of ham. Right. And, um, would that, would that be fair? <laughs> right. Uh, and we say, well, you know, God, he sometimes, you know, he, he gives us, not going to, you know, he's going to give us grace to handle this and, you know, and all that. And it's just, that would, that's a challenging sort of a thing to tell people in every case. So again, I, I would think I would make it a personal matter. Um, I know that sounds ridiculous uh, at the same time. And I've said this before, my understanding, my training, my background, everything in me, uh, resists that. Um, and so don't ask me to officiate your gay wedding. I will not. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting juxtaposition. Mm -hmm. And that's a kind of an illustration of your point right. uh, about Jews and Gentiles and differing convictions. Mm -hmm. You have convictions personally. You would even say they're closely related to the gospel. Mm -hmm. um, but that <laughs> um, you don't want to impose those on another. What you do want to call another to is the gospel standard. Right. And there are, and to learn from Christ's self-sacrifice for us, um, to, uh, discern from that, what that means in their life and how right. to follow that. Right. Yeah. And so if there's a gay couple, I do think monogamy is, is important in the sense that, um, promiscuity and polygamy and those things, they do arise from what scripture calls lust. There's a, a greed for sexual conquest relationship that puts self at the center. And I think that sexuality needs to remove self from the center and be for the sake of the relationship or whatever. And so I, I would say that there are, you know, there are certain things, um, that are clearly unhealthy are clearly rooted in the sensual self. And Paul says, and I agree with him that, that, that 
that indulging the flesh destroys freedom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so if freedom is the ethic, you know, someone would say, well, I, I can be promiscuous because I'm free. And my response would be not for long. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, that's a good place to stop. We got to wrap it up. Thanks, everyone. Well, we covered a lot of ground today. Man, it's bonkers, if you, yeah. I bet you got questions for us, people. <laughs> Email us to discussion at recoverfaith.org. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>